Hello, and welcome to the Shadow Work Library. My name is Jessica DePotzi, and if you haven't noticed in the last five seconds, this intro has really bad audio quality. I'm traveling right now, but the rest of the show sounds nice and crispy, so you don't have to worry about this. I'm currently en route to Dr. Danielle McGinnis and Rick Alexander's wedding in Denver. I'm so excited about. And they've both actually been on the show before, too. Now, I didn't bring my microphone because I needed to save space in my suitcase for this game called Beat That. If you don't know what that game is, look it up. I'll even post it in the show notes. It's so fun. It's so dumb. It's just a great way to laugh with people and be silly, and we don't need more of that. All right, so that is a bad segue into this show with Dr. Nathan Riley because it is a very deep episode. Really, really deep. I was feeling a certain kind of way throughout this because, well, he has a beautiful way of bringing someone into his world of death and rebirth. Literally, he works with death and birth. I originally brought him on to talk about shadow work that goes along with one's fertility journey, and I didn't expect to go to some of the places we explored, but I'm so glad we did because he really went there. He showed up. This is a fantastic episode for anyone, not just people who are looking to conceive, because Dr. Nathan Riley, he's a board certified OBGYN, but also he is so much more than that. If you like the magical, the mystical, and the nerdy, you're going to fall in love with this man and learn quite a bit in the process. Now, if you are on your fertility journey, I'd ask that you check out his website, which will be linked in the show notes, and take a look at his new program called The Born Free Method, which is open for enrollment right now. Uh, This is May 2023, and you'll get 10% off using the code SHADOW10 in checkout. Okay, last thing from me, if you're feeling what we're sharing here, It would be great if you left a rating and review. It feels so good to hear from those of you who are listening. And it also helps other people find the show when you validate the quality. Alrighty, enjoy this episode with Dr. Nathan Riley. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I'm going to take a drink out of my giant. Look at this. I got this at a wedding. Stay hydrated. You know, the... When I was in residency, everybody was always drinking so much water, like our clients and the urogynecology program is are the people that talk, you know, they, they deal with bladder issues, with prolapse, oh, usually yeah. older population, sometimes young women with pelvic pain. Like there was a Disney, I was in LA for residency and there was a, a Disney princess who couldn't have sex because she, it was horribly painful. It's those types of issues that the urogyns deal with. And these old ladies had adopted this practice of drinking like four Nalgene's a day because that's what they were told to do. And they didn't actually have overactive bladder. They were just peeing all the time mm-hmm. and not fast enough to get there because of their hip issues or their back issues or whatever. And they were peeing their pants. So it wasn't actually incontinence. It was, why are we telling everybody to drink four gallons of water per day? It's kind of interesting, but wow. I'm just as guilty. I've got like a big Nalgene with me at all times. <laughs> I mean, clearly we've already started the show, Nathan Riley. Welcome. Um, <laughs> yeah, we let's go. get into what you do in a second, but a Disney princess that couldn't have sex. That sounds like the saddest Disney movie Isn't I've ever heard saddest? of. Yeah, that that one didn't make the cut whenever Pixar <laughs> presented it. Yeah. Um, I don't it's think not I too late. any. I, <laughs> it's not too late. I hope you're listening, Disney. Jessica and I have a great idea for you. Um, yeah, what a sad story. I mean, she was like completely debilitated by this pain. And oftentimes it's just a matter of like getting some physical therapy to help relax the pelvic floor. Mm. And a lot of us with so much stuff pent up it oftentimes presents in the pelvis which leads to pregnancy issues fertility issues and everything else but in her case it was presenting as horrible burning pain every time something was inserted into the vagina so this poor woman in like all of her glory she like had just gone off shift and she had her makeup and her hair done and even the slightest you know breeze across her vulva 
you know, caused her whole body to lock up. And it was, it was just so sad, but see all kinds of weird, weird things when you're, when you're in a person's vulnerable space that you would never expect to have seen in any other walk of life. I'm sure. (laughs) You know, that is so wild. Like as a, if we take the human out of it, because clearly a really difficult experience and just look at it from an archetypal perspective, doesn't that actually sound like the best Disney movie we could create for our children right now? Like just talking about how pain is stored in the body and how it can manifest and everything you see on the outside is not what's actually happening on the inside. You know, there was that, you're absolutely right. In fact, I kind of wish that we took some of those archetypal, I mean, Disney is the like they are the masters of of illustrating these archetypes, right? Like we know those male archetypes that we all have still held on to as the as a man. Gaston, we were just watching Beauty and the Beast, my daughter and I. Gaston is the epitome of the kind of guy that is no longer the only type of guy that we can always be. But back when I was a kid, everybody wanted to be big, strong, handsome, gallant, you know, this this mm. like like uh caballero as we as they say in mexico in, in spanish it's it's like the the hunky guy that is capable of doing anything if disney took that archetype of this this um of this particular person that i'm talking about and made an entire movie about it in processing trauma and i do think she probably had some history of some some sort of sexual trauma in the past that was either regressed or you know um what is the word repressed i suppose um how do we work through that? Like, how do we actually engage a person in conversation around that? Because that actually, that pain that people carry sometimes doesn't come out until they're about to have a baby. And they end up talking to me and I, I meet a very different person on the phone who's now so horrified that they're going to go through this process. Like all of that deep repressed stuff is coming out now. Mm-hmm. So I always like to work with people from an early state, even preconception. Like, let's really talk about what your story. The first step is let's tell your story. If Disney ran with that, it would be an incredible tool, I think, for society. I'm not publishing this because this has now become an NDA situation <laughs> and we have to go straight to Paramount. It's intellectual um, yeah. property. I just contacted my lawyer. You didn't see me, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, even the, the spinoff of Gaston and everything that he's storing to need to present like that. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. That guy probably had quite the childhood. Yeah, that guy had all of the sensitivity and sensibility, you know, snuffed out of him when he was a little kid. Like poor Gaston. We need to make a follow up to that about the the what led Gaston to be Gaston. Wow, this is all a thing right now. I'm really feeling the. <laughs> it's a curse watching Disney movies now as an adult and reading maybe too much that I'm capable of. Uh, I know of resolving. I know. Yeah, especially with what you do, like going deep into, you know, Jungian analysis and the archetypes and and trauma and holy smokes. Yeah. It's yeah, a thing. It's a thing. Disney well, uh, you're rife for this this next step, Disney, in your in your evolution. Yes. Disney and traumas aside, today we're talking about vaginas and uh vagina the vaginas of our mind. Does mm. that work? No, I don't think that quite works. So Nathan, you're an OBGYN. And you're a midwife. And what other things would you call yourself before we get into the meat of the show? Well, I will correct you. I would not call myself a midwife, even though I practice like a midwife. I think it's one thing to say that you're a midwife and one thing to say that you honor midwifery, which is certainly I'm more of the latter. And the reason I say that, Jessica, is because for years, we're talking millennia, the midwife has been this sort of counterculture 
um, this undercurrent of women's health care that even despite three centuries of the witch trials, which, you know, predominated the, the European landscape from the 14th through the roughly 17th centuries, the midwives were still caring for the vast majority of women who were giving birth. That was like the one area that even when Rockefeller medicine took over, it wasn't immediately the purview of Western medicine. Midwives have passed down this knowledge, sitting with women, holding space for women for millennia. And so for me to say, just casually call myself a midwife, I don't think, I don't think that it would, it would honor the rich history there, but secretly, I kind of wish instead of having been a Jew and OBGYN, I would have taken that path because they have it, they have it right. If you're out there, you're pregnant, you're considering having a baby, midwives do the vast majority of births way better than the surgeons um, like me, even though I try my best to put those tools aside and to honor um, this space holding practice, this, this really rich tradition of midwifery. Oh, I really appreciate you saying that. That's really special. Maybe in a past life you were a midwife, though. Do you feel that? Yeah, or or maybe you know one thing I actually think about with the uh, with the you know the the witch hunts, which was a systematic eradication of millions of women and children across Europe. It was guided by the church. It was supported by the ruling elites, many of whom were self-proclaimed professors of surgery and medicine and all of that. Mm. Um, the reason I'm, I'm I'll, this is going to make sense. It's going to come full circle, I promise. But back in those times, there was this Bible, the Hammer of Witches. It was, uh, I can't remember the the name. It was the, oh, the Malleus Maleficarum. It was basically this big, thick book that anybody out there could use in order to determine how to go out on a witch hunt. And what types of things to look for? You have that mark on your shoulder there. I've certainly got lots of moles and all this. That might be enough for somebody to say she's a witch or she has potions or tinctures. Plenty of which are in my my pharmacopoeia of supplements and all that other stuff. Most of the things that people like you and me hold near and dear would have been enough for somebody to say they're a witch. And then the trial is a judge and a doctor, again, a self-proclaimed member of the ruling elite who says, I'm a doctor would then determine, are you practicing medicine or witchcraft? And if it was determined by the doctor, the self-proclaimed doctor that you were practicing witchcraft, you're just tortured and killed in front of your family. Wow. So something Charles Eisenstein brought up for me, who's a, a very, um, he's a very eloquent speaker on, um, let's say, let's just say society as a whole. He's written some really, really important books and he's become a dear friend of mine over the past few years, especially with COVID. He had mentioned in an interview I did with him that the the wounded male, the wounded masculine um, from this era continues to sort of peek through the blinds in our current society in that if me as a man having two little daughters and a wife who is a beautiful witch in her own right, you know, she had a home birth. She uses all sorts of oils and tinctures. We did postpartum steaming, like there's a lot of not so Western medicine stuff that in our household. In fact, I can't remember the last time we took pharmaceuticals. Mm. That would be, you know, enough for her to be pulled into the town square and killed in front of us. And I would have to stand back in order to protect my my children. But I'm watching my beloved. We met when we were 15, watch her burn to death. My little girl is watching mom burn to death. This was what was happening in Europe for three centuries. So now we fast forward and we see what's happening within the our current society and you know we're all siloed off there's not a lot of mutual respect there's a lot of men that are puffing their chests and trying to go to arms in order to defend 
their tribe and, and all of that. And while that may be important for in, in some regards, we also have a lot of men that are very, very wounded. And this might be passed down through their lineage, having been a man who had to stand and watch this happen. And they're never going to let that type of injustice happen again. It's one way to look at at history. I don't I don't necessarily think that it's fully accurate, but I kind of wonder if maybe back then I was a part of something and it it kind of transmutated into my my current activist work within women's healthcare. I, I don't know where it came came from otherwise. Sure. I mean, this is like a full circle Gaston moment that we're talking about here. Right? Sure. I mean, the redemption song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we are seeing a, a decline in a sense of um, pride. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word for it, but I'm not coming across anything else that's feeling yeah. very lit. But um, in being a man, like that is a thing. And then there's way overdoing it. And I find. Mm -hmm. In the conversations that I've had, especially with veterans, because that's the majority of who I've worked with and most of my, I wouldn't say most of my friends, but many, many of my friends are veterans. Um, it is a something that we grew up with and it's a part yeah. of our lineage. And then this um, swing to the other side of the spectrum to where we're seeing a lot of problems with our idols from the early nineties of the late eighties, you know, GI Joe and sure, and like He-Man and all those things. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of where that could have been coming from and, and resolving that is taking the wind out of a lot of male sales. Um, but it's all yeah. part of that growing pain, right? So yeah. you've been a part of this death and a lot of us listening right now and watching and being a part of this conversation are yeah. into this death and rebirth um, way of life, metaphorically. Now you're doing it literally. What mm -hmm. is it about you that chose to do this messy, intense work, literally? That's a good question. And I've been asked it so many times, um, but I, I do think my father passing away in medical school and not being able to, to quote, save him from, from death mm. played a part. Not that I felt compelled that that was my job, but having to face the loss of a parent, you know, if anybody out there, if you even you have lost a parent that you were close to, and my dad had it and I had a very typical kind of rust belt, blue collar um, dad, kind of tough on me, you know, didn't really ever show any emotions. That was that was what I was raised with, but it, it didn't make any easier to lose him. If anything, maybe it made it harder because we actually were, de I was desperate to connect with him and didn't have the tools because I hadn't had any men in my life model, you know, interpersonal deep connection, you know, and fortunately I have a lot of men in my life now um, who do that. But when I was in medical school, I was about halfway through and my father had been um, getting treatment for something called multiple myeloma for about five years. You know, he was diagnosed back in college. My wife and I, girlfriend at the time, we went to Korea to teach for English. And then I decided to come back and go to the med school route. And about halfway through that, two years of long, hard book work, I um, was relocated back to Pittsburgh to do the clinical rotations where you get to be in the surgical room and you get to do family medicine and all these things. And my dad was actively dying. So I, I even remember calling off a code, like a CPR code on him when he started to, you know, to slip away one time in the hospital. And I was like, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to do this. And, um, and I realized that like somebody's got to talk to him in a certain way for us to understand where he's at. What does he really want here? And it was the palliative care team at UPMC and University of Pittsburgh is my hometown um, or not the University of Pittsburgh, 
in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they really got him to open up about his his sort of past, you know, tribulations with Christianity and how scared he was and how he was going to miss his children and all this. And it was like this eye opening experience. How could we, how could we get to a person's like nitty gritty in just a few minutes of conversation? How can we build that rapport really, really quickly? And when I was going through my OBGYN training, I realized I don't have any clue what's important to this person, yet they're going through this true initiation where death is on the line. Not that you're going to die in childbirth, but your identity dies. Your mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being are definitely shaken up. And fortunately, it's unlikely you're going to die in childbirth, but there's nothing safe about a spiritual transformation. And that's what I was seeing in childbirth. And here I am trying to do the help, trying to provide that help. And my tools, surgery and pharmaceuticals weren't going to help me. But then I saw my father pass away. I remember I remembered him passing away when I was in med school. And I was like, what if I could bring that communication style into the birth world and we could really get to know where a person's at and stand shoulder to shoulder with them as opposed to being a part of the Western medical system, butting up heads to head to head with them. And so, yes, I straddle these worlds. I take care of people at end of life. I take care of people bringing life into the space. And I've actually, Jessica, really started to develop this this feeling. It's not like, a, it's not an analytical thing. It's more of a feeling that birth and death are actually two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And if you consider Stan Groff's work, he was got, got really famous with his, uh, his, in his work with Joan Halifax through the use of LSD for existential pain at end of life. It was during the sixties, of course, before the stigmatization of psychedelics, which is now fortunately in resurgence, especially for end of life purposes. But at the time they were giving LSD to people who were were passing away and they were struggling with this what is going to happen to me question that we all struggle with if you don't struggle with it you're you're not thinking <laughs> you're not you're not really present with with just how monumental that opportunity is that privilege of dying and um and he apart from his work with LSD he also did some quite a bit of philosophizing and theorizing around the embodiment of a little fetus with those energetic bodies, the, the, the etheric, the astral, the eye, this consciousness, this all of this stuff that we talk about. Th- and, and through the lens of childbirth and his experience with death, he developed this theory, which he called the perinatal matrices, matrices theory, where you start in the amniotic universe, then there's this, this cosmic oppression as you get squeezed into this tighter and tighter space as you grow. And then there's this grapple with birth and, and death and rebirth. And then a light opens up and you go through that light and bam, you have the resolution of that of that struggle. And it's through that that you actually become, that's like the, 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 the caterpillar in the chrysalis and then emerging as a butterfly. There's a transformation that is happening. And all of this is a very dynamic process. But without that struggle of death and rebirth, you, you don't emerge embodied with these important energetic bodies. So um, mm-hmm. there is a, a nice blend of these two worlds. I kind of see myself as, if you want to call me a midwife, I'm sort of a midwife for birth and death. I really, really just love honoring these, these rites of passage. And man, has it enriched my life too, to be a part of the two things that we don't like talking about, you know, the messiness sure. of, of these real things that people go through. Uh, the death part especially is something that we as a society don't tend to like to talk about or don't like to feel. And so my question for you that came up was, do you experience the same level of joy as you're bringing a life into or guiding a life into this earth as you are helping guiding it out? Mm. Um, 
Let me t- can I tell a very short story about something that happened where these two things happened at the same time? This is a podcast. <laughs> tell stories. Let's riff. Um, <laughs> okay, so when I was in residency, I was in my fourth year of residency. This woman came in and she was in in active labor, but she was only like thirty two weeks. Babies that come before thirty seven weeks tend to need a little extra help when they come out because their lungs aren't fully matured. So we admitted her to the hospital. We gave her steroids and antibiotics because there was maybe an infection brewing, all this stuff. She ended up having her baby at 32 weeks and two days or something. But she, and she was having heavy bleeding. I was the person attending to her. I was helping care for her and the baby's on the warmer. The baby's not crying. And I'm like, you know, you you become like extra sensory in these experiences if you're present. And I was like, that's not, that's strange. You normally hear a baby screaming and like the baby's emerged, the baby's calibrating itself to this, you know, earth side experience. And, um, I see people filing in behind me and then more people filing in and now stuff's like the alarms are going off. It's like, well, what's happening with this baby? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, if it's a 28 week baby, you might really be worried. A 32 week baby usually doesn't have this much trouble. What's going on here? So they rushed the baby to the operating room and I, I joined them thereafter and they called up surgeons and this and that. And eventually one of the pediatric surgeons came out and kind of congregated around us and said, the baby doesn't have a trachea. So the trachea is what connects your, your, your oral and nasal passageways to your lung mainstem bronchi. So the baby had two big airways into each lung, but there was no connection between the, the lungs and the back of the, the throat, essentially. That is not fixable. This is not a reparable thing. And even if we had detected it, uh, had detected it ahead of time, there's nothing we could have done. So we're left with this situation. The baby has a, an artificial airway through the, the neck down in this sort of like when a, when a, an old person is intubated at end of life or person's in a bad car accident, this baby's getting bagged, like ventilated with a bag and the baby's alive, but we have no way of, of, of continuing that on. Mm-hmm. It, it would be impossible. So, of course, the mother's there in, in horror. The father's there in horror. Grandma came and took their babies away. They had two other young kids with him. And she said, I just want to hold her. And so she's holding her baby who she just carried for 32 weeks. And they took the bag away and the baby died in her arms. Mm. So I want to pause and anybody listening, just if you have children or you think about having children, if you even if you just have a close family member or you have any sensibility about this, just imagine what that must feel like. And everybody's clicking away on computers and there's instruments being organized and there's all this chatter everywhere. And eventually she just says, are we able to curse on your show? No, oh, yeah. Okay. She just says, just leave me the fuck alone. And there's, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody files out. Everybody kind of realizes at that moment how just, how precious these final moments are. And as that baby took her last breaths, it's me, it's a nurse, and it's this mom and dad there. It's the first time <clears throat> I told that I told that story without cheering up because I have two little girls of my own. But in that moment, there is nothing more or less important than that, than what we're a part of right now. But that is really, really squeamish. There's a lot of of ickiness there for people because we're so removed from the dying process. So if I were to say that I was as excited when a person dies as when a baby is born, it probably sounds pretty macabre, but I'm close. In fact, I actually do see the dying process as a true privilege. It comes earlier than we want. 
It comes in ways that we don't that that, that we don't want. Um, and there's nothing more painful than saying goodbye to somebody that you love so dearly, even if you just met this little person. But it doesn't serve us at all to continue to push this can down the road and to never actually face our mortality. And I'm not talking about just going and doing ayahuasca in the jungle or whatever helps you get into that space. I mean, right now, closing your eyes and imagining your death, memento mori, you're going to die. And if you don't remember that, you're going to get stuck in this rat race of just doing the shit every day without realizing just how important it is to call your mom, to hug your little girls, to, you know, fuck your wife, like to really, really like enjoy what you've got here. Mm. But it's not even just that selfishness. It's also like if our communities were more accepting of the reality that people are going to die, we wouldn't end up hap having what happened with these past three years. Mm -hmm. We would actually embrace the opportunity to dignify people and to not isolate them and let them die alone. I got fired <clears throat> about a year and a half ago from my last conventional medicine job because I took a mask off caring for a 95-year-old man who was dying of heart failure, hadn't seen a face or been touched for 18 months, Jessica. So I rubbed his hands with lotion. I clipped his toenails. I made him a can of soup in the in the in the pantry. I watched some baseball with him and heard all of his war stories. You know, he'd been in Vietnam. He had, you know, he had like all the stories. In fact, I think he was in World War II as well as like a 17-year-old amateur baseball player. Like this was this guy's legacy, and he's gonna die alone here without any love and support. This is actually what birth is about. This is a rite of passage. This is not a medical procedure, and death is is not a failure of the medical sciences. But until we can grapple with these rites of passage, we're not going to see anything improve. And what I always say is if we can't get birth right, we're never going to fix any of these other issues in the world. Jeez. I've never gotten emotional on this podcast before. This is a first. And I want to thank you for that, um, mm. especially around this topic, because this is something that I, uh, I don't know shaken right now I have to say um fantastic story okay. and I'm really proud of you for how you lost your job mm, really proud you. of you I should be sending them flowers to be honest it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me I didn't have the courage to just quit and figure things out but then I was forced to to figure things out and um, I have a very rich life as a result of of that that happening that's usually yeah. how things work out right you mm. the next <laughs> yeah, best right. thing right. whether it makes sense or not and that's all you really can focus on doing. And the universe usually takes care of the results, as cliche as that sounds. I'm producing a documentary yeah. right now called Post-Traumatic Growth. Uh, it's called Dark Night of Our Soul, but it's on post-traumatic growth. And one of the things that we were, we couldn't get away from, which was really interesting, was this concept of death and our avoidance of it and how perhaps that is spiderwebbed into the ways that we have conversations, the ways that we embrace little bits of adversities. Like the other day I was driving down the freeway and my bumper flew off my car, you know, <laughs> and I got really pissed and scared and went into a bit of a spiral and had a moment where I needed to check myself, but just little things yeah. like that, you know, and stories like this, the things that really matter mm. are the things we don't often talk about because why? Because we're Gaston, you mm. know, because mm -hmm. it's not mm. sexy because all the dating advice is like, don't trauma bond. Don't what's the word I'm thinking? Don't, uh, you know, vomit all of your emotions onto someone the first couple of dates. And while that may be good advice, I think it keeps people at bay. It keeps friends at bay. You don't want to be the one that 
yeah is weird or whatnot um but i wanted to ask you since it seems like you have a lot a lot of knowledge around the history of the human experience when do you think it this milestone happened for us where we stopped embracing death for the rite of passage that it is and we started staving it off um through any means possible and just trying to stay alive without living you know i was a i was prepared as i i heard the question being developed i was prepared to say that's the that's a great question i have no idea but i actually have a very good idea (laughs) (laughs) so Around the 15th or 16th centuries, actually 16th, 17th centuries, there was a, a big uh, amplification of some philosoph- certain philosoph- philosophers' works, namely Francis Bacon, um, uh, Rene Descartes. These were important figures in history because up until that point, for at least several thousand years before that, um, all the way back to ancient Sumer, our written human history really reflected a... Um, cosmologies that were much more polytheistic, even androgynous, bisexual deities. There was just as many, as much reverence for the, the feminine as there was the masculine from our cosmology standpoint. And this was a, a, um, the, the, the growth of especially the Protestant and Catholic churches over the millennia, and particularly over, let's say, the past um, maybe 500 years or so, let's say 500 years before the 15th, 16th centuries, you had um, the church kind of just started getting so much power that medicine actually was sort of not able to develop. We had no idea how the inner body workings of the body um, kind of, you know, amounted, right? So we didn't know how the heart worked, the cardiovascular system, the lungs. We had no idea because we couldn't, we couldn't reasonably dissect into a body because the church wouldn't, it, it was forbidden. And it was actually considered pretty barbaric. Surgery was always the like, the, you know, the kind of barbaric version of healing, right? Mm -hmm. And so enter Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes and and their sort of embodiment of their work really manifested as a separation of the spirit and the mind. Let's say the psyche, the soul, the spirit, these immeasurable facets of the human experience from the physical corpus. And the church you know, allowed it at the time. I mean, there was all sorts of shifting power dynamics around this this period of time. But you know, Rene Descartes, especially, I think, therefore, I am. It, it was it was clear that the body is is separate from the spirit and the soul, and and perhaps that's that's good in in a lot of regards. And I think it was from the standpoint of understanding of of the human body, the anatomy, the physiology. The problem was is now is that we have never come back to say, hey, maybe we've separated them too much. And that's why when your doctor's caring for you, they still see you as a as a, an automobile with a bunch of separate parts. And if we polish each of those up, we can put you back together Frankensteinian, right? It doesn't really work like that. We all know that. But the Western medical system only reflects what can we measure, which outcomes are important to measure. And it's those those things like blood loss or infection rates, or are you alive? Are you breathing and alive after this C-section or whatever else? The reason this is relevant to your question is that it was the perpetuation of this notion that only those physically measurable facets of the world are important have, have emerged in agriculture and forest management and land management. We have taken fields millions of acres of fields. And we've said, hey, if we put in the right amount of this and the right amount of this, we're going to get more corn. And only 
Now are we realizing, oh shit, we have a bunch of infertile soil now that we've completely depleted because we've tried to overtake nature. So this whole thing that has emerged, I think over the past, especially hundred years, since the turn of the 20th century, we can say, has been a war against nature. You know, germ theory emerged, you know, mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. Um, we also, um, we also, you know, we did see some improvements with sterilization practices and whatnot. So it seemed like we were on the right track. But nowadays, when we when we when we die, we're not even comfortable being buried in the soil to be reconsumed by by Mother Earth, which is the embodiment of the divine feminine. We're going to be repurposed. Like what a gift that we get to be 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 a part of what becomes everything else in the future. Instead, we embalm the bodies. We put jewelry on the bodies. We put them in a lead-lined casket. We we bury that casket in a concrete tomb because heaven forbid you become worm food. Like that is just the mm -hmm. most like like macabre thing out there. But really, that is just an inability or an unwillingness, let's say, to relate to our mortality. And our inability to relate to our mortality reflects our inability, inability, blech, inability to relate to ourselves, to other people because it's all a matter now of prolonging dying or avoiding death. Mm -hmm. And that's not what life is about. That's not that's not at all what life is about. Right. It's clearly not about drifting from cradle to grave and working a little bit in the middle, which yeah. seems to be the common yeah. narrative right now. I'm yeah. really glad you brought up this, um, this topic of separating our mental and the spiritual from the physical body, because as we get into this conversation around fertility or infertility, sure. Um, it's a, it's a big thing, right? It is seen as two different things. There's blood labs and there are the real doctors. And then there are the sound baths and the things you do that are the extras mm. that will maybe help or something, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. this is especially a topic that I'm having a really interesting time with as I'm working with some consultants around my documentary and getting into this bigger fundraising portion, which is, uh, we keep talking about holistic health, post-traumatic mm. growth being a theory that is exponentially helpful for our holistic well-being and they don't like that word they're like people understand mental health or physical health but having that conversation just doesn't make sense anymore and it's hard for our team to resolve because sure there's conventional wisdom and things that are easy for people to understand and then there's real truth around what we're doing yeah. here <clears throat> that's and right so as as we get into this conversation of, I wanted to talk about infertility because in the conversations that you and I had had prior to this, um, I'd been going on a very long pregnancy fertility journey, I guess you can say for many, yeah. many years, which has still not been resolved given that my circumstance is a little bit different right now and it's not quite my focus, but um, my narrative was, and this will bring Catholicism into it too, in a little bit of a backwards way, that it's really easy to get pregnant. Right. Mm. Um, very easy. You know, if your shirt or if your skirt isn't four inches above your knee or it's not below, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you start doing the thing and you realize, oh, I'm not getting pregnant. And all of a sudden you're 35 and it's like, OK, yeah. so my current understanding or not my current understanding, my understanding previous to meeting you is that infertility rates are higher now because there are so many women that are having a quote, hard time getting pregnant. Um, but what I've learned since is that that may not be true. Um, mm. Maybe we're having less children, but we're not infertile, just plain infertile and for your generally healthy woman like I am. So I was wondering yeah. if you could touch on that a little bit. 
Yeah. So the even the term infertile um, kind of makes me squirm a little bit because <laughs> because that that presumes that you don't have the working apparatus to get pregnant naturally and to carry a baby. However, when people have been given that that title, they absorb that identity as 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 being sterile. Mm. And when I meet them, oftentimes they come through my fertility program or whatever, and they're meeting with a bunch of people that are not talking about their hormones alone. They're actually talking about a whole bunch of other things. Um, they do get pregnant and they're like, well, why did the doctor tell me that? Or I tell them, hey, I don't think you're infertile. I actually think we have a fertility challenge here. And the word subfertility is sometimes used where, hey, it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be, but we haven't turned over every stone and now you're looking at a $15,000 IVF bill if you go that way. Why don't we try some other things and just see if we play with lifestyle, we play with not just the physical, but also the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, doing some shadow work. Let's find out what this story has meant to you. What is the um, What are you bringing into this and what do you want to get out of it? That is not something that most of the RE doctors, the reproductive endocrinologists that do the IVF and everything, they're not really incentivized to look upstream and to look in deep into a person in order to figure out what what, what, what is going on here. Mm. Now, that's not to say I have a magic wand and everybody gets pregnant just like this. It is hard work. But when we talk about the declining fertility rates, what the Western medical system has done is said, oh, great. Good thing we have a, a an answer for that, and it's called in vitro fertilization or intrauterine insemination, which is a lot cheaper, oftentimes is, is even covered by insurance, but it takes the whole spirit out of the whole process. That's not to say that if you're going that route, that it's bad. In some, in some cases, my clients still end up going that route, but we've at least improved the likelihood of that investment carrying to term, mm -hmm. meaning you have a baby after, after all the procedures and the hormones. But what I um what I I think is really important is that as we see fertility rates declining, nobody's asking why. But more importantly, nobody in the Western medical system is even asking what is life. Like when does that moment happen? And I'm not talking abortion rights here. Like I'm not talking Roe versus Wade. Everybody gets caught up in that. I mean, how did this cell and this cell get together, and then become embodied with all these energetic bodies, and then emerge as a human that that ends up writing a best-selling book someday? Like mm -hmm. how does that happen? People think it's a religious question. I actually think it is the central question to all of medicine. And my Western medicine colleagues tend to disagree. And that's okay, because I don't work with them anymore. But when you start to actually sort of uncover some of the mysteries here, I'll give you an example. If you had a, a fallopian tube removed, let's say your left fallopian tube is removed. And by the way, if, here's the model up here. Here's the uterus. Here's the tubes. These tubes go out to an ovary on each side. When you were born, if you have the you know the the, the classical anatomy, you're going to have a vulva inside the vulva. Vulva is not the same as the vagina, guys. It's not the same as the pussy. It, it's these are these are terms <laughs> that mean different things. I've, I'm surprised by how many educated people call they look at a vulva or they look at this this uterus and they're like, oh, you got a vagina on your wallet. There is there's a little there's... little <laughs> a little hint of a vagina down here, but anyway. <laughs> Is you've got the cervix, the uterus, the tubes, the ovaries. If I remove one of the tubes, which is supposed to be transporting an egg towards the uterine cavity um, on the left side, and I remove the ovary on the right side, you still can get pregnant. Mm. So what the hell is happening there? We've got what? this ovum that's released on the left and is somehow picked up on the right and, tra and travels and meets a sperm. I don't know. It's a really interesting mystery.
The other interesting thing that happens is that when that egg is popped into a Petri dish for IVF and you put a bunch of sperm in there with it, the sperm, of course, bum rush the egg, this big vacuolated cell, which by the way, you can see with the human eye. It's the only cell that you can see with the human eye. It's big, filled with water. It's It seems relatively immobile, but there's all this activity inside the egg. The sperm is this little powerhouse of energy activity, and they all rush the egg and millions of them. They all start bumping into it, trying to surround it, creating this corona uh, all the way around the egg, which you can also see with the naked eye. It's really quite interesting. But the fascinating part is that egg starts rotating counterclockwise every time. Mm. Why? Like, why does that happen? So that is not a part of the answer to your question, but it is a part of the curiosity that has led me down a path where I'm opening doors that I don't think anybody else has really started to open up and to synthesize into a more holistic, truly holistic approach to what is happening when a baby is conceived. And so a lot of what I've been kind of jiving with here is through the lens of Rudolf Steiner, anthroposophic medicine is my third board specialty that I'm going to be getting in the near future. And they start with the question of what is life? So let me stop there because <laughs> that was a lot. <laughs> well, let me just say, if you were born at a at a more unfortunate time, you'd definitely be dead because you're a witch. <laughs> I'm a fucking witch. I'm a, a warlock. Is the warlock a male witch? Like, do you have any idea? I've been thinking about that recently. I mean, I think it was until Harry Potter came out and they never really used that term. I think it's wizard, but oh, wizard. that may just wizard. be a new thing. Gotcha. Um, would this be a good time to talk about biogeometry? Because I really wanted to dive into that a bit. Please. Talking yeah. about this, the egg rotating and some of these, I guess, movements uh, and cymatics, you know, that. Let's do it. That's a really great segue. I don't even know a question to ask. What can you say? I got you. I got you. Because I've I've actually been actively thinking about this as I'm thinking about the embryologic developments through the lens of anthroposophy as opposed to just sperm meets egg. If it was just sperm meets egg, everybody would be having sex all the time or uh, having babies every nine months, right? Um, Okay. So cymatics is um, a really interesting field. For those of you who aren't familiar, if you were to vibrate a tin plate with a bunch of sand on it at various frequencies, you're gonna get different two-dimensional patterns. The sand granules just seem to find their way into these really complicated shapes, and you're gonna get a different shape at a, at any, at any um, frequency in Hertz. You can also do this with a three-dimensional blob or like a plasma. You, you run a current through it, you get a frequency there, and it will form these very obvious shapes within itself. Like the water molecules seem to know where to go without themselves perhaps having like a, a, a book in front of them, a game plan as to where the coach wants me to go. Maybe they do. Maybe they do have a plan. But perhaps the plan is also provided through um, the lens of like Taggart and some of these other uh, really gifted thinkers around what um, around what is actually manifesting in front of us when we see things is, the, is this greater field Perhaps there's a reason that those cells <clears throat> are going to a specific place on that plate based on some field that we otherwise don't have a really great way of measuring. And remember, if you can't measure it, it is not the purview of medicine. Mm. That's what we've been taught. That's what we have adopted as our conventional way of thinking in the medical field. Now, before I go further, if you get hit by a car, if you get stabbed in the eyeball, if you have a terrible blood infection... If your baby's going to die without a C-section, there is a great reason to have operating rooms and surgeons and doctors, but this is not the purview of doctors in, in medicine. In fact, the sciences are going a different direction from medicine altogether, which I won't get into. So 
Anyways, if this field is dictating somehow where these little granules of sand are going, perhaps when a gamete from the mother called the ovum, a gamete from the father called a sperm, meet and they, they merge into one, their chromosomes get all mixed up, and then they start dividing rapidly such that after a hundred divisions, you have something like a billion or whatever cells. If you watch, and we can do this through the lens of like a zebrafish, because it actually you know has a very, very uh, short gestational period, meaning it goes from that single cell to a billion cells real fast compared mm -hmm. to a human, which has you know however many gazillion cells. You can watch it on time-lapse and you see all these cells that are moving around one another in some it seems like it's orchestrated. It was like a well-choreographed you know, flash mob at the mall. Somehow they all know where they're going. How the fuck does that happen? <laughs> Perhaps because we don't have another, any other explanation. So you know, if you have a better idea out there, guys, let me know. But perhaps it is something re relevant to this field. In the same lens of you know, that we view cymatics, perhaps there's something else that's responsible for the embryologic development. And if since you brought up biogeometry, if something were to um, interfere with how that field is interacting with the physical matter in front of you, which is just energy that has slowed down you know, sufficiently for you to see it, then so if, if all of the radio waves, the 5G and everything interferes with that field, then perhaps could we start to see issues with you know, procreation, with how our plants grow or whatever else. And if you look at a tree on a grid line, I've, I've done the advanced biogeometry training with Ibrahim and Doria Kareem, um, the tree will go around it. Like there is really something spectacularly endearing and curious about that. And what about this very delicate little embryo that you've been wanting for six years of trying and we're blasting it with 5G? I'm not saying that it it is going to cause you know an issue, but why couldn't it cause an issue? Why not? So a lot of my fertility, well, all of my fertility clients, I actually send them the pendants, the biogeometry pendants in order to wear around them in order to mitigate whatever that bath of, of radio waves actually feels like, you know, because mm. we can't sense it. You don't know until you know. And maybe that's why my clients are so successful. Or maybe it's many of the other functional reasons, like with the labs and all that else and everything else. But if we're going to take a truly holistic approach, we can't look at it through just one side. If you look at a bouquet of flowers, you're only going to see purple flowers on this side. The other person on the other side of the table might see red flowers and you might argue about the color of the flowers. Well, it's it's a three-dimensional object. There are many ways for us to look at this problem. Maybe it's hormonal. Maybe it's the 5G tower in your backyard. But a truly holistic approach takes in, into account all of these factors. So the biometric uh, pendants that I've seen them, they're like yeah. a, a circle with uh, like a Chinese coin them. with yeah. a gap like almost like a almost donut but there's a hole yeah out of it wow what a great explanation that was um <laughs> and so it's a physical object that yeah. they'll wear um yeah. are there physical objects that are common around our homes that are detrimental other than 5g like actual physical um objects that you might want to remove from your home yeah, there's a whole field within biogeometry of architecture. Like Ibrahim Karim, the PhD, he's been on like Czech's podcasts and he's a really outstanding, um, he's an architect, he's a designer, but has a very, very in-depth knowledge of of physics on, you know, it, all all sort of schools of physics. Like he's just a very, very thoughtful, educated guy. 
um, he would argue that the way that the house is positioned geographically, um, is it on top of these grid lines? Are the angles in your home consistent with a, a healthier, let's just say healthy for lack of better terms, vibrational frequency, or can we modify it by adjusting those right angles to something a little bit less right angle, less 90 or, or greater than 90 in order to have a more, um, to have a more coherent space that's more conducive for life than for anti-life, <laughs> if that's mm. the right word. So he, you know, a lot of the adjustments are actually putting little stickers into your window to eliminate right angles or to um, modify mm, using color, for example, because each color corresponds to a different frequency. Can we change the vibrational energy of the space through these very, very simple adjustments. And of course, if you're wearing the pendant, I normally have mine on. I must have, I was doing kettlebells earlier, so I must have taken it off because it was smacking me in the noggin. Um, but yeah, the, those those pendants are, are sort of your your extra reassurance that that you've cleared it and it is going to help with any sort of detrimental waveforms that are coming your way day and night. That's great. Um, I had to laugh at the the irony of your um, 5G protecting pendant, like whacking you in the face. I know. Right You're supposed eye. to protect me. Guy, <laughs> that's funny. So when you're working with women, um, okay. First of all, I really, really like the idea of the pendant. I like the idea because one of the challenges that I came across in my own experience was my hormone levels and being somewhat dyslexic and having my wonderful naturopath who was also sure. very much into Reiki and she was just such a wonderful person. Um, she was explaining hormones to me and if you tweak this one, that one's affected. And if you tweak that one, this one's affected. And I'm like, okay, like just tell me what pills to take and I'm here for it. Right. Yeah. yeah. But one of the biggest things was being chronically stressed and being a business owner and just generally a young woman, young, I'm not that young anymore, but you know, being a woman, um, in this How life, old are you, Jessica? I'm 35. Okay. Yeah. You're not that old. <laughs> I'm young. I'm like, I'm a kid still. <laughs> I'm ageless. Uh, you know, she was like, you really have to reduce your stress and like, okay. So that was very interesting practice for me because I picked up Qigong, I picked up yoga, right on. but I also realized the level of determined or discipline that I needed to do those things because I didn't quite fall in love with them. It yeah. still felt very yang for me to schedule it in. The energy behind it was very like, I have to do this. And it just sure. wasn't scratching that itch. And I was having a really hard time bringing my stress levels down. And so I came across a few things that helped, which is playing certain types of music or um, you know, incense, but things that didn't require me to have to be super yang about it, just creating yeah. a stack. And so, um, rearranging my home while I couldn't afford likely an architect to fix things. I love the stickers in the windows, like very affordable ways to mm -hmm. maneuver some of this energy around that doesn't require me to be in my masculine as was one of my biggest problems, I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, the yang versus yin is pretty much the entire, uh, really provides a great sort of foundational understanding of, I think, what's what's lacking for many people. I think most people, even those people who are like down with the medical system, but they're taking a hundred supplements per day, you're, you're, you're failing to realize, you know, that this tricky ego, what is it? Jim Carrey says something like, how, how, how tricky is this ego that it leads us to believe that we have to desperately search for something that we already have, right? 
you are unlikely to be deficient in a hundred different vitamins or nutrients or whatever. Mm. It's it's unlikely. There is definitely reason to believe that you have a nutritional deficiency. I'm talking about the general population here, but you're not going to fix that issue by going out and spending a thousand dollars a month on supplements alone. It's usually an energetic imbalance that's happening here. And this is really, I'm borrowing from the Eastern mystics and Eastern, you know, Chinese medicine and whatnot, even Ayurveda. It's all a matter of providing something to the body that is preventing it from harmonizing with its surroundings. So as much as I love a lot of these supplement companies and some of them even support the show, this is not the end all be all. And if you're not going to make that conscious decision to step out of your, your state of yang excess and, and really nourish the yin, none of that's going to matter. So the vast majority of what I do in my fertility program, yes, there's a lot of functional medicine testing. I'm going through the Institute for Functional Medicine and getting that certification as well to shore up some of my skills, but it's not everything. In fact, a lot of functional practitioners, they call themselves practitioners because they're oftentimes not doctors who have no concept of how many textbooks there are on biochemistry and neurochemistry and, and the gut and everything else. <clears throat> you can't do a, a stool analysis, which I do in my practice. And then just fix that and expect everything else to get better if the process of, of ascertaining what test to get and how many supplements a day and all this other stuff keeps you in that yang, that yang exce that excessive yang state. So I think you're kind of right on the money there. That's actually the the simplest explanation, but the hardest one to implement. And I am just as guilty. I am a doer. I've got eight chainsaws in the air at a time. I'm launching this new course. The first thing to go is sleep. But it's not just sleep. It's also how am I showing up in the world? Can I be present with my wife? Or am I constantly deliberating what my next thing is going to be doing, even though I'm looking and listening to her, you know, whenever we're, we're talking? So that is actually a very, very important point. So the fact that you even recognize that and that you're honoring that is kind of the hardest first step for many, many people who are on this fertility journey. It is very strange to recognize because you can do all of the right things, but if the energy behind it isn't right. Right. Like felt to me at least fairly meaningless. Like I, I would take, I don't know what it was, but it was some herb, but I just knew me taking this is it, it like, there's something else. There's something that I'm doing. It's my life. It's something, yeah. there's something <clears throat> in there. And so earlier you had talked about stories. What story are you telling yourself? Um, how often does that yeah. come up uh, in terms of, so if we were to look at leveraging someone's behavior change over um, the most helpful thing they could do. What would right. be like the easiest thing to do to help you create a beautiful home for a potential baby? And even if you're not trying to get pregnant, sure. like I'm not right now, but I would still love to know what would be the easiest thing to do in terms of behavior change and also the most helpful for your own balancing. Oh, well, the answer might not make too many people very happy, but it's the <laughs> truth. I mean, it's my truth. It's played out time and time again in experiences with people who have had babies, who are trying to conceive, they get pregnant. And by the way, I haven't really spoken to this subfertility issue, but I would say less than 2% of people are truly infertile, mm -hmm. despite 15 to 20% of couples being told that and really embodying that, that I can't get pregnant. I need the doctors to harvest my eggs and put it together and taking all of the sort of fun out of it, you know, and, um, the, but, but having said that to answer your, your question, I think that the number one thing 
that is probably relevant relevant to everybody's well-being, whether you're going to try to have a baby, you're going to become a parent, is that you have been decon you've been conditioned to outsource your power to other people mm. for your entire life. It's the main reason people aren't sending their kids, at least conscious parents, aren't really excited about sending them to public school. They wake up at 7 a.m., which is a totally contra their their like physiologic diurnal rhythms of how much sleep you need when you're an adolescent. You go to school, you sit in these rows, you have to raise your hand for everything from peeing to pooping to, you know, you can't laugh, you can't make jokes. It's just do this thing. They're conditioning you to give away your power every moment. Now, kids do need boundaries. I'm not saying you just let them run around and if they get killed, that was Darwin's, you know, you get the Darwin Award. What I mean is that because as parents, as adults, we've, we've, we've outsourced this power to the government, to our religious leaders, to mom and dad for ever, for our entire life. Now that it comes down to getting pregnant, you have to take responsibility for every single thing that you do. And that is not a, that is not meant to actually to stress you out about what you're not doing. It's actually telling you to take your foot off the brake and surrender to this a little bit. Just because you've been controlled your whole life doesn't mean that you can necessarily control this in the way that you've been controlled. So I know I'm kind of speaking in circles here, but what happens in pregnancy? And I'll, I'll you know I'll tell a story about a, a couple who just had a birth a, not too long ago, um, a couple of days ago. I have to try to not use any identifying information, but they were like they were in. I was their remote doc where we are cruising. They are really embodying this experience that you know we've had them over for dinner, this and that. Mm -hmm. But something bad happened in their birth. Their baby wasn't breathing, so they had to be rushed to the hospital. And one of them in this partnership completely flipped 180 degrees and was so angry at the midwife. I wasn't the, the, the home birth attendant. It was as if the, the home birth midwife was responsible for this. Mm. And the, re the reason I'm telling this story is that when you have a baby, there is a lot that's out of your control. The medical system has convinced you and reassured you that if you give us control, everything's going to be fine. Healthy mom, healthy baby. But that's increasingly sort of leaving women feeling like the experience of giving birth, giving birth wasn't honored in the hospital system. That's why I do what I do outside of the system. But when a, a something happens in childbirth, if you have made every decision along the way that has been in alignment, it's been a fuck yes from inside, then whatever that outcome is after the fact, there's an appeasement sort of on the, to that inner voice at least you were the one to make that decision. We have a lot of bad outcomes in the hospital where you've outsourced your power as well. But when that bad outcome happens, you start doubting, like, why did I say yes to that medicine? Or why did I go with the C-section? I didn't feel good about the decision. And you start whipping yourself and beating yourself up. This whole notion of free birth, where you're ultimately the one who's going to be birthing your baby, there's no attendant there, is increasingly popular because mm -hmm. people are starting to reclaim that power. And when you make decisions for yourself, that's a fuck yes from inside, you and your partner have really jiving here. There's this union of the masculine and feminine. We are here, we're honoring the experience. Regardless of the outcome, you don't carry additional trauma for not having listened to your soul in guiding you. So whether you're before pregnancy, you're after pregnancy, you're a parent, you're trying to do this, I think the number one thing that we can realize is that you have so much power in just simply saying, no thanks, that doesn't feel right for me, I'm just gonna go this way. Thank you for all the information, you've been so supportive, thank you doc or midwife or whatever, but I'm gonna actually do it this way. 
And I know that's not your preference and I respect that, but we're going to do it this way. And then shut the fuck up and just let life unfold. Your doctor, your midwife, whoever it is that you feel that you've slighted because they represent power structures, they're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to deal with somebody, you know, compassionately saying thanks, but no thanks. That's on us. That's on the system. That's not on you to carry that. And there are women who have even decided against C-section and as a result, their baby dies. Mm. But sometimes babies die anyways. And the women who have actually stood on their two feet and made an adult decision, because that's what you're going to have to do as a parent, they actually, you know, we all grieve when bad things happen, but their grief process is far less complicated than somebody who went against their soul's guidance and made a decision that was not a fuck yes. So that's a really good practice. Everybody out there taking responsibility for your actions and the outcomes of those decisions. Mm. I don't mean for this to sound leading. So I'm sure it will sound leading now that I said that. But um, <laughs> do you think the success rate of births these days and for a while now yeah. has contributed in any way to um, some offshoots, some negative consequences that we didn't see coming? Because death and childbirth, um, babies dying, children dying yeah. often yeah. used to be much more common. Have you any thoughts on that? That's a good question. So what I will say is that, you know, when a woman walks into a hospital and they're contracting, you know, like these painful surges, as I call them, they're happening, your labor, baby, labor's happening, baby's coming. And somebody walks in with a white coat and they say, oh, hi, honey. And they use all these like really gentle words. I'm just going to check your check, check the vagina, just a little pressure. And they put their hand in and they're look feeling for things. They say, I just got to check on the baby. First off, that generally doesn't lead to any information that's going to help to check on the baby or help you or your baby out. Mm -hmm. um, there's very, very rare instances. And I won't get into that. But when that sort of thing happens, this woman might even be saying, no, 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 I don't want that, whether it's internal or they're vocalizing it, but there's going to be somebody holding them down, holding their legs apart. And many women say it feels like rape. Mm. So our fear of something bad happening in these limited technologies that we have from a vaginal exam with our fingers to the continuous fetal heart rate monitoring that has done nothing but jack up our C-section rates over the past several decades since it became universal. Really? Are meant, yeah, yeah. And that's the biggest complaint about a lot of people, from a lot of people who give birth in hospitals. These monitors are on all the time. Like, talk about a distraction, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so in our efforts to save one baby, which, by the way, the risk of a baby dying inside the uterus here in the United States or even not surviving childbirth is extremely low. But we are mortal, and it will happen. But our efforts to reduce that number to zero have actually led us to traumatize quite a few people mm -hmm. through our language, through the way that we talk to them, through the way that we touch them, a complete dismissal of their autonomy. And we say, oh, you know, you don't want your baby to die, right? Or I'm just going to check on the baby. We use these platitudes. We were trained to use these platitudes. But they're such unconscious, it's such unconscious coercion. I can't blame them for being coercive. I'm not saying you're being coercive. I'm saying you need to realize that in an effort to save that one in a million baby, you're actually creating so much pain across women who have been subjugated and violated for millennia by people who look just like me. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I, I hope I'm kind of getting to it. You did. You did in a way that I was hoping you would because I had <laughs> a, I didn't have all that information, but my soul knew that there was something that I wanted to ask you about in regards to that. Uh, 
to bring it down to zero has, and that the, the language around it does feel, um, really impactful. And like our, our friend, Mark England, um, he's always talking about (laughs) language being the thing, right? It's such a, an easy mechanism to change culture. And that's why his work is very interesting because he can literally have the power to change culture if we can reduce a lot of the, what he calls conflict language, but this traumatizing language that on the surface seems so sweet and so Mm -hmm. helpful. But having a baby is not like doing your taxes. I will trust my taxes to an accountant for sure, because there are weird little laws that I'm never going to understand and don't give a fuck about. But when it comes to my own body, the because I was about to go through the IVF process and everything about that was like, no, 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 don't do it. And this could be perfectly fine for somebody else that's feeling it, but I was not. But then the fear around being childless forever or um, the judgment of maybe my parents, you know, like you could just do it. You have the money to do it. Just do it. It'll probably work. Like there was something about it that didn't quite feel right. And I didn't know what it is and I still don't know what it is. And maybe it's okay at some point, but there, there is a level of shame that's associated with fertility that is so interesting because it doesn't seem like it should be like that. Having a baby is not like growing a tumor. Like it's not, there's like nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and having said that we, you know, a part of that adoption of, of our, our war against nature, you know, with, which was really driven a lot by germ theory. Everybody out there since COVID is like, germ theory was a scam. Like, no, we were sterilizing instruments and doing surgery without people dying from infection. There actually was a good reason for us to be thoughtful about germ theory and what was causing all these, you know, you know, crazy um, infections and all of that. But that war against nature, I think, um, I think it sort of plays out. Let me pause. Let me pause. Let's let me go back to your question. Restate your question. Otherwise, I'm going to go on a really re- weird diatribe that might not make sense. <laughs> God, I don't even remember what my question was. Why don't you continue on your diatribe? <laughs> well, I I kind of I guess I kind of wanted to go back into this fertility conversation. So because it was you know it was more a statement around the shame around yeah, yeah being. Uh, you know, it, it reflected to me the scenario that you would express in that story around um, not having a C-section and the result being a baby that's dead, you know, yeah. and yeah. can you live with that? Well, yeah, of course we can live with that. You know, I know how that sa- may sound, but an- our ancestors had experienced that for a long time. And so to resolve um, making a decision and then feeling good about that decision, even though everything else tells you it was a bad decision. I mean, like, I don't know, there's something around that. Well, let's look at like, uh, let's, let's talk about miscarriage. You know, I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's very, a reasonable bridge there. Well, you know, a, a baby dying in the uterus and then having to give birth to a dead baby. Uh, I just got off the phone with a, another woman I consulted with, and I can't imagine losing a baby at 38 weeks and going through that. And I don't think anybody can. I don't think it's it's easy to empathize with that because that is that sounds like potentially a catastrophic event that you'll never, you know, you'll never be free of. I mean, of course, I don't think we ever really fully get, you know, um, heal with time. You know, there's that really great TED talk. Um, what's her name? Nora McGinty or something. But she's like, I lost my husband when we were young. We had young kids, and everybody always was saying 
you know, everything gets better with time and whatnot. No, it doesn't fucking get better with time. In fact, the grief that I carry about my husband is not debilitating me, but it is an important morsel of him that I carry. Mm. If I were to just ignore it and pretend like that didn't happen, that would actually be worse. So we don't actually fully hear heal from grief, but we're also not immune to grief. We are all going to grieve somebody close to us being lost if you've allowed yourself to get close enough to somebody to grieve them. Mm. You know, Stephen Jenkinson, he, he's this really, really great writer. He he writes quite a bit about this, that when people, you know, acknowledge, you know, I, I have a hard time connecting with this conversation around death because I've never lost somebody that was that close to me. Like, do you realize what an admonishment that is? Like, You've never been close enough to somebody that you grieved their death. Like you've got to get out there and meet more people. Like you've never even allowed yourself to get close to somebody. Like that's a whole separate conversation. So this grieving that we do, that we, you know, experience through childbirth, um, let's say a miscarriage, you've been trying for six years. It's the classic story. You finally get pregnant in Dr. Riley's great program. And then you miscarry. We always say things like, Hey, you know, it happens 15 to 20% of the time, even in healthy, normal first pregnancy, you know, first trimester. Don't worry about it. You can always get pregnant again. Does that make that experience better? Mm -hmm. Especially when the doctor has you sitting on crinkly paper, has barely introduced themselves, shoves a phallic wand in your vagina, doesn't even look at you and starts moving it around like a joystick and then says, oh yeah, sorry, I don't see a heartbeat. Oh, I'm really sorry. Well, here, why don't you get dressed and I'll come back in when you're when you're when you're dressed and we'll talk about what procedure we have to do now to to finish this, right? There's just not a lot of human compassion. And so what I would what I would I guess the resistance that's coming up in me is that miscarriages do happen, yes. And they're going to continue happening, yes. Subfertility is a problem, yes. Babies sometimes don't aren't aren't fit for the childbirth experience. Yeah. Sometimes C-sections happen. Sometimes moms die. Fortunately, very, very rarely, even more rare that a mom dies than a baby dies. Mm. But the point of this is that when the person, the individual that's going through that emerges on the other side, we don't have any structures within our society, our siloed society, in order to care for one another in that way. So much so that our fear of mortality led us to isolate children and fire doctors for rubbing lotion on, on a poor old dying man's hands and feet, a war veteran, two wars, baseball career. We are so compelled to save every last baby that we're actually willing to do all this other harm in areas that are not the purview of medicine, which is the immeasurable part of the human experience. Mm. Wow. It's a really important conversation to have. Feels very touchy feels very touchy. Every word oh, yeah. that's come out of my mouth throughout this hour and whatever we're at feels like, am I committing to saying this? Mm. And I'm realizing that that thing that you had said earlier on about giving your power away is definitely something that I've been working on like actively right now. Yeah. And so this whole conversation around choosing myself as a person that was born into this time where a lot of these things are not okay. Yeah. There's a lot of work there. Um, thank you, you for being a, in this conversation with me. Yeah. It's, it's my pleasure. I'm curious, where are you feeling that resistance? Like in your body, if, if you are feeling it in your body, I'm feeling it in my heart. Like I'm, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm almost feeling into uh, the women that are listening that have lost a baby that yeah. I can't begin to empathize with. And yeah. so it feels like if I 
even have an opinion about this, it's invalidating their experience because I haven't yeah. had it. Yeah. And then also holding on to, well, maybe that's, that's okay to feel a certain kind of way to have an opinion. You know, this is dang dude, this is supposed well, to be. <laughs> well, I think that I, I I'm going to fill in a couple blanks. I think that you might also be kind of, you know, peppered with because they're, they're really mm -hmm. common considerations in our society. A lot of people would say, how could you make this How could you have done this thing as an soon to be mother? If it could have been, you know, if that thing that ended up happening as a result could have been prevented, how could you do that? That is that person who's doing the criticism. That's actually their deep work to do because that person made a decision. They're an adult. They, they held on to their power and they made, this, made that decision. They are also going to have to live with the circumstances of the outcome. But in the medical system, what we do in response to bad outcomes is we throw more surgery, we throw more pharmaceuticals as if it's going to eliminate the need for us to care for one another because we're mortal people. Mm. You know, we don't even let an old person die until we've thrown an extra million and a half of technology, tubes and lines and drugs at them until we can say, we tried everything. Mm. In the meantime, we've dragged them through three months of hell on chemo and radiation and unnecessary surgeries and let them feel like shit for those three months as opposed to dignifying them and really trying to understand who they are. The medical system does not put a lot of attention to the other elements of the human experience. Palliative care and hospice, we do a much better job because we know that there are spiritual considerations. Sometimes people use opioids because of spiritual pain mm. because they want to numb it out. But you know, with the advent of, or the resurgence, I'd say, of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapies, ketamine therapies and whatnot, we're actually starting to see some actual novel therapeutics for those things. But all of this is to say that if you've lost a baby, this is not saying, hey, suck it up, buttercup. This is saying we as a society need to get better at acknowledging and honoring these losses as opposed to you know, washing them the way away because it's too hard for us to sit in somebody else's pain. Mm. And that's actually where I've fine-tuned my instruments. I realized I don't want to do more surgeries. You guys do all the surgeries. I'm going to hone my skills in sitting and being present with a person who's in pain and not letting my own shadows, my own demons get away of my inability to see a person cry, my inability to hold them close, to feel their heart against mine, to love them, like truly love them without judgment. That's really where the work is. And that's not something that we incentivize much in the medical system. Instead, we say, hey, it's seven minutes is up. You have another client coming or another patient coming. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's rife with issues. And we're never going to have an answer to why some babies die, why some people have a hard time with miscarriages. And the more technology we throw at it, I don't think we're necessarily going to ever get to zero. And we're neglecting all of these other, quote, soft sciences for actually helping um, honor a person through loving compassion. I would love if you could share with us a bit about um, your program that you're opening up uh, very soon. Yeah. And uh, a few of the modalities that you feel or the sections of it that you feel relate to what we talked about today. So if people are interested in joining, um, they can see how that all fits in. Yeah, thank you. Um, this has been an eight-month process of building this course. It's called the Born Free Method. 
and it's going to be a part of the Born Free University, which is going to have a bunch of other courses in it for people that kind of resonate with using the most holistic means possible to achieve, um, you know, whatever it is they're seeking within the realm of women's health. We're also going to have some courses for dads from the men optimizing their health, et cetera. But the, 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 the sort of headline of Born Free is claiming your power back, acting through the lens of radical responsibility, and then owning the the outcomes of those decisions while bearing in mind that if we can apply the best environment for your body, both the mom and the dad and this baby, um, before enduring pregnancy, that you're actually going to have a lesser likelihood of those bad things happening. So the big scary things, you know, um, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, a lot of what you're going to learn in the course is actually my in-depth knowledge about lifestyle medicine in preventing those things from happening at all going through risks, benefits, alternatives to every intervention under the sun is a big part of the course. Exercises in order to practice saying no, um, stretching, mobility exercises, some some light, you know, even basic movement patterns, which by the way, it's not a problem to exercise in pregnancy. In fact, I recommend lifting weights in pregnancy, despite what everybody tells you. That is the number one thing that we have found through the literature to improve the odds of you having a pregnancy that is free of complications, faster postpartum recovery, lesser chance of C-section, all of those things. So we get in the weeds here. Um, it is an eight-week course, but when people join, they get lifetime access. Every update, because information is always changing and our insights and experience is always changing, we're going to be updating it for free for everybody. When you join, you never pay another dime. And we're doing 12 months of weekly calls. My my co-pilot on this is Sarah Rosser, who's one of the farm midwives, Ina May's legacy in Summertown, Tennessee. Um there are guided meditations. There are, and, and the weekly calls are going to be both birth workers and people who are conceiving in the future, or they're already pregnant, um, or they're even postpartum. You're going to get all of that, and everything can be found at Born Free Method. There's plenty of other bonuses, but I'll let people go there to bornfreemethod.com and check it out themselves. Awesome. And I'll have all those links in the show notes as well. Um, now, in going through all of this with you, I now really understand think I understand why you are as interested in birth as you are in death. Like it all makes sense now. You mm. did a really great job in expressing the the history, the science, the spirit, and uh, the patterns that I think um, I think if people go through your course and I'm excited to at some point, we'll just do it this time. Um, that you're going to be a better person on this other side of it, you know, even just understanding how how to hold on to yourself throughout sure. a challenging endeavor, an initiatory endeavor, sounds like the like maybe the ultimate shadow work process. Actually, totally. I I actually think pregnancy is shadow work. I actually think that that actually is what the 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 um that is like the byproduct of growing a baby is you're going to have to do some internal reflection and you and your partner have to connect because if you don't now you don't know who you are you don't know where those demons lie you haven't started working through them you're going to project them onto your little kids and i am actively raising little kids i know this and i'm constantly working on it myself but there's a whole unit in the course just for dads there's a whole unit on on psychedelics and cannabis use in pregnancy this is a this is a game changer. I mean, it really is. We've invested so much time because we know that the topics that or that even what you just brought up, it's um, it's not reflected in the education out there. But it is so critical. 
It is so critical. And it's not about throwing caution to the wind. It's a matter of understanding what the risks are, what your risk tolerance is, and then making decisions that feel like a fuck yes from the inside. That's really what this is all about. Mm, I love it. Okay. Before I let you go, um, do you have any tips on how to have better sex? We'll just end it on that. Oh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) is that your realm? Well, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of So my fertility clients come to me and they're having such mechanical sex Mm -hmm. and it's because they've been timing it around their, their meant their fertility window and the test turned, let's get it. And I was on that path with my wife. Part of the reason I developed that program at all was because when we finally did get pregnant, it was only like six to seven months. But like you, I was like, oh, erect penis insert, get a a baby in nine and a half months. Right. And, um, and when we finally were, were, were pregnant, I was like, it was like exaltation. I've never felt Mm -hmm. that before. And I want so badly to give that to, to other people. But one of the biggest issues is not what your magnesium levels are in all the functional testing. Like that's important, but that is like elementary school level fertility support. Anybody can check your blood, your blood, you know, and serum levels and then give you supplements. That's easy. What's more, what's what's actually more impactful is something I call, I do called a 10-day connection challenge for each of my fertility clients. And it starts exactly as you would think. You're going to give each other a foot rub. And then the next day, maybe if you're the one who always decides what 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 your guys are going to eat, you're going to actually decide and you're just going to nod along and just go with the flow, right? We're going to mm-hmm. switch roles here a little bit. The next day might be just dancing to a song you both love. You don't have to dance together. You don't have to touch. I know we're all awkward, you know, us white people when we get on the dance floor, but just move, <laughs> just move. The next day might be creating something, you know, artistically, right? So it it leads all the way up to genital massage through your clothing, but the point here is not for you to um, learn about each other's bodies, although that's a that's a, a nice con- a consequence of it. It's really for you guys to start playing again. Mm. We make everything so mechanical. We're in that yang excess. It's time to have sex. It's on the schedule. Um, I want you to actually relinquish all of that control. Let me worry about your fertility journey. I want you guys to go home and play and paint one another naked um, or feed each other strawberries or heck, go do some Molly and go to a concert. Do something to reconnect in a way that is without judgment, without criticism and without insecurities. So I think if everybody took that approach and maybe thrown a little bit of cannabis, if you guys out there have issues with premature ejaculation, if you have erectile dysfunction in your 20s and 30s, I, you need to consider what else is going on in your life and I'm happy to work with you. But um, that's my cannabis, I think, is actually, if you have a really good connection with cannabis, that can be a really powerful tool as well. Beautiful. Wow. The emotional range of this episode was just like off the charts. <laughs> oh All God. right. That was my wife crazy. <laughs> I'm I not it. a good dinner party guest. I'll tell you that. I'm like, what about this, guys? This, the egg spins counterclockwise. Oh, what do you guys think? And they're like, what do you want? Do you want like the, the general sows or you want the orange chicken? Like, what were you thinking? And I'm like, oh, right. It's not that type of dinner party. Got it. <laughs> You're amazing. This has been so fun. I can't wait to have a dinner party with you. Please talk about all the uh, vulvas and I'll be in Austin in July for some, some tattoo hey. work. So we'll, we'll hang out and get some coffee. Oh, I love it. Great. Is your wife coming too and your babies? They will be. They'll be here for a whole week during that two-week period. I'm getting a bunch of tattooing work done from a great artist named Heidi. And uh, and um, I've got two sessions at the beginning, first two days, two sessions at the end with about 10 to 12 days in between. So we'll have plenty of time. The girls, the all the family will be here. So it'll be a lot of fun. Oh, I'm so excited to meet this epic crew. I keep hearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They are amazing. Some great, great little people. 
well, in a great way. <laughs> thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I learned so much and uh, I'm going to go lay face down on the ground right now and think about what I learned and laugh and cry. And <laughs> Please stay in touch. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And to all your listeners, you guys are the ones out there that are changing this by just listening to great conversations and great interviews. Um, Jessica, your, your podcast is amazing. I'm just so happy and fortunate that you had me on. So it's a real privilege and honor. Thank you so much.